Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. We welcome you to Bite Into It, where we talk technology, computing, the internet, uh, all kinds of fun stuff that uh, you should be paying attention to, if we do say so, uh, tonight. Uh, behind the desk, we have Joe Eaton. Joe, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Warren? Pretty good. How, how are you dealing with the hot weather? How's it working for you? I'm really tough. Really tough. That's a good way to be. Uh, Rena Murray, how are you doing this week? Pretty good. Yeah. Keeping me out of trouble. Keeping out of trouble? Uh, <laughs> or you had some motorcycle trouble? I did have some motorcycle trouble. This is my community service announcement to mm. look right, look left, look bike and yeah. don't pull out in front of bikers on freeways. But I am okay and the bike is unscathed. Amazing. Tough also. We're a tough team. <laughs> Damn straight. Um, I'll be with you also on the show tonight. I'm Warren Davies. Uh, tonight on the show, we've got um, some great stuff uh, in store for you. Uh, our privacy online has become something of a, uh, a battleground for each of us, uh, and certainly for the large tech providers out there whose services we do grace. Um, WhatsApp has been historically, I will say relatively uh, strong uh, in this space, but of late, has really had to, uh, I guess, defend its credentials with some more vigor. Um, after a bit of work recently, they detected uh, a concerted effort around a vulnerability in video calls. Um, and we'll chat with Latrobe Cybersecurity Research Fellow, uh, Dr. Dr. Stanley uh, Shanapinda, about that in just a few minutes. And you might have also picked up in recent news that uh, Twitter, um, in a, I guess a bid to kind of um, fork its um, competition, will be banning political ads uh, from November. Uh, will others follow suit? Uh, we'll take a look at what that could mean for campaigns in the future with Associate Professor Johan Lindberg of Monash University uh, a little later in the show. But before then, we've got heaps to talk about. Um, this is an interesting one. Um, there's a new streaming platform out there and they've already had a few issues. They have indeed. So we're talking about good old Disney Plus, which is the new Disney uh, streaming platform, which is not just doing straight up Disney. It's doing, you know, Star Wars and Marvel and what have you. And it's immensely popular. I actually had a flying trip to LA about two weeks ago and um, all of the bus stops in the city were just Disney Plus lit up like Christmas trees. So mm. this was something Disney was taking really seriously. And... Um, um, sorry to say, Disney Plus, but they've got a hacking problem. So oh. ZDNet has um, found hacked usernames and passwords for Disney Plus accounts were being offered for sale on the dark web. So right now they don't know how they got there, you know, how they're being hacked. But the usual, um, you know, caveats around password protection do apply. Don't use 123789 as your password. Don't use your first name as your password. And try and avoid reusing passwords across multiple platforms. They do. They have identified that a couple of those hacked users had been previously hacked and were continuing to use old hacked passwords, but that's certainly not the case for about 80% of them. So the jury's out on how this has actually occurred. Um, it's not a great look for Disney+, Plus, which, of course, had a million problems on day one with the platform going down and all sorts of things. But hopefully it's, you know, full steam ahead from here on in. 
a good thing you can do as well is um, go to the website. Uh, I have been pwned. Um, you can kind of um, see if your credentials are out there floating around. Um, I did. I have done that once after <laughs> um, something strange happened to me. It was, it's very disconcerting to see your details up there. Oh, but yuck. At least you can change it. I didn't realize that um, Disney Plus doesn't have multi-factor authentication. That's that seems weird. It it se- yeah. It seems it, it's quite possible that they've taken that UX perspective of the bare minimum of clicks to get the outcome, yeah. mm. but of course that you know that mm, yeah pick your battles man <laughs> yeah interesting um another thing that we thought was uh was making news um uh, sweden has dropped the rape charge against uh, julian assange um which uh, i guess in the the sort of rolling uh 10-year saga of the uh, wikileaks founder um is uh i guess a significant moment um uh, i guess sort of regardless of what you think about should they drop the charges um, uh, or should they persist with them? Um, I guess we might see things come to a head. Um, so once the US charges were um, revealed um, recently, um, uh, Assange was uh, 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 hoisted out of the um, embassy that mm. um, he was temporarily staying in and he's now in um, uh, a jail in London um, uh, waiting uh, a hearing on the charges. Um, so interesting. I, I think... Um, I guess we'd all like a, a resolution to this. Um, it, it's been drawing on for a long time. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I, I guess even um, Wikipedia, Wikileaks w- would probably prefer to just uh, move on as well and, and on to the next thing, mm. um, which we might even talk about a little bit later in the show. They've got some new things cooking up. But, um, yeah, we'll stay across that and, and see what happens. Um, it's, uh, it's fairly complex, but, um, yeah, interesting nonetheless. Absolutely. Uh, and we've got some news on the robo-debt front. So the federal government announced this week that they're immediately halting a really core part of the very controversial and rather horrible robo-debt scheme. Um, and basically, they've made an announcement. The, the, the At the core of it is they've made the decision to require additional proof when using income averaging to identify overpayments. And these overpayments... Uh, you know, it's really well documented that um, the, the whole robo-debt scheme has been catastrophic for, mm. you know, people that have fallen victim to it. The whole thing is an absolute mess, but the, the main error does appear to be coming from they're essentially guessing and then they're going after, you know, our most vulnerable citizens. So um, it's, you know, very good news that they're halting that part. And, you know, we've really got a shout out to, you know, some of the activists, um, especially like Asher Wolf, who have kept the pressure on. They have continued to document. They've continued to highlight and they've continued to you know be mouthpieces to provide proof that this is a problem this is a completely flawed system and this has needed to happen so you know shout out to Asher and the other activists that have really kept the pressure on. Mm. Uh, another thing that uh, is interesting uh, in, in terms of, uh, I, I guess, money and how things work, um, negative interest rates uh, are potentially uh, on the horizon and they threaten to uh, choke our bank's IT systems. So we're not really set up to uh, deal with uh, negative interest rates. Um, it's kind of a little bit like the Y2K bug um, from a, a long time back. No one really <laughs> kind of anticipated it would happen. Um, so, yeah, uh, as of last Friday, all of Australia's big four banks have essentially conceded they would struggle to make their transactional and mortgage systems cope with a switch to negative interest rates, um, with CEOs confirming a rapid testing is now underway to model the sequences of, of a flip. Um yeah, so interesting. We'll have to um, keep an eye on that one. It's not the sort of thing that you can solve quickly as well. So hopefully they get a bit of help from um, the RBA to kind of give them the kind of month or so they need just to model that and, and figure out how to um, deal with it. Um, so we'll keep an eye on that one too. Um, yeah. Very interesting. Um, what's going on at Sun Microsystems? You've picked up on a interesting thread of 
design. Yeah, absolutely. So um, if anyone wants to go and look this up, I've um, I've tweeted this thread and tagged Byte into it, so you guys should be able to find it pretty easily. Um, but essentially, a developer has written an absolute doozy of a thread talking about product design at Sun Microsystems back in the day. And um, this was all from around 15 years ago and how Sun Microsystems went off and developed um, a, a really quite magical um, platform using, you know, components it's called, you know, Sunblade and Sunray and what have you. Um, and, and this was essentially, uh, you know, highly portable cloud-based computing, excuse me, that just needed a swipey card to, you know, bring interfaces back. Um, and the the, re- the thing that triggered this particular thread was um, Google's Stadia Games platform seems to be suffering from some, some of the same issues. Sun Microsystems um, obviously went down the tubes about 15 years ago because essentially they were building platforms that they just thought would be good not looking at the user and you know there's a lot of you know chatter online that Google Stadia games platform is truly not um, not stacking up they, they tried to build something because they could not because it's actually going to add value to anyone um, you know so one of the one of the tweets that's been folded into this thread is actually someone comparing um, Red Dead Redemption on Google Stadia with another platform and the quality is appalling. It looks dreadful. It's just a whole mess. So um, it's just a really time reminder for tech companies to always keep that user in mind. And if you're not doing something new, if you're not doing something impactful, if you're not doing something beneficial, don't just make it for the bottom line. This idea of the um, there would be no desktops, we'd all be plugged into a supercomputer, mm. is really interesting. And they had it, and it was working. Yes, they had sun blades and sun rays, and you had like a little card with the SIM, which carried around your um, uh, your software or sort of where you're up to at the time, uh, almost like a browser session. And you just like drop the card in, and and there it was. Yeah, yeah, it actually looked really, really cool. Um, but you know. <laughs> the world's moved on, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> people, people like having their stuff, don't they? They do, yeah. Interesting. Um, speaking about some things that we can't have, what can't we have anymore, Joe? Well, um, in response to um, the uh, Centres for Disease Control in the States uh, reporting that 42 people have died due to vaping product use and in 49 states, thousands more people have had lung injuries. So Apple have made a somewhat controversial decision to remove all 101, 81, sorry, 181 vaping-related apps from the App Store. So that even includes those that are information-based about vaping um, and even vaping-related games. So, yeah, I guess they're just trying to... Um... Mm. Clean up the store. Yeah, as just, they do. Just just taking the ciggies off the shelves and put them somewhere else. Well, not ciggies, but yeah, interesting. I think um, it's hard to kind of be categorical about the science, but there's not a lot positive um, being said about vaping and, and mm. its relationship to cigarettes and is it better for you or whatnot. Well, so, it's not the first time that Apple have, have uh, banned app categories. Mm. Um, they've done things like... Um, ban things around marijuana and um, mm. and gun violence and things like that in the past. 
Mm, and definitely sex tech as well. Sex tech has definitely taken a hit um, in in the you know good old Apple and Google stores as well. Mm. Um, you know, so many devices are now um, app enabled, and sometimes you just can't get them short of downloading them straight from the website. So it, it is very interesting that like I, I can completely understand when genuinely detrimental or illegal activity facilitating apps. By all means, Apple should be looking at it. But there's also the entire free speech thing. Should yeah. a tech company be making moral decisions about what is legal and it, you know, mm. and okay. What was the main row of that um, amazing uh, company that was doing some activism around censorship? Oh, Unbound. Unbound, yeah. they're amazing. Yeah, they, they do some absolutely fantastic Check stuff. Check them and, out. They, yes. Yeah. Yep, I'll, I'll absolutely put my hand up. You know, Polly and the crew from Unbound, they they stand up and, you know, make a lot of some quite terrible stuff in that, you know, space transparent because there's um, – PayPal is continuing to wind back, yeah. you know, payment acceptance. Or just they're shutting down economies. It's unreal. Yeah. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Hey, uh, we have we are having a, I guess, a bit of a, a, a conversation tonight about um, social media platforms and um, how they're serving us, uh, how they're changing our experience of um, I don't know conversations and how we share information online. And uh, one that we uh, a lot of us do use is WhatsApp. Uh, and historically, it's been very strong on um, uh, protecting our privacy. Um, but maybe that's less so the case these days. They have a new owner, um, and we've recently learnt that. Um, there are some uh, interesting vulnerabilities uh, in the platform. We're now joined on air by Latrobe Cybersecurity Research Fellow, Dr. Stanley Shanapinda. Uh, Stanley, thanks for joining us on the show tonight. Hi, it's a pleasure. It's uh, good to be here with you guys. Are you a WhatsApp user yourself, or did you kind of have a bit of a, a laugh up your sleeve when you found out about this and went, phew, thank God it wasn't me? <laughs> well, I unfortunately am one of the, the users, um, so I've got to get the experience to know what's going on. But sometimes I wish I, I better, I, that I didn't have to use it. Mm. And, and, and what's actually been discovered here? What, what's the problem that WhatsApp have encountered? So the biggest problem has been, there have been a few, and in the last two weeks another vulnerability was, was disclosed. But I think for the big one that's made headlines around the world was in April and May this year when a what, what they call a command injection vulnerability was found in WhatsApp that they didn't, that they didn't patch and then quickly rushed to do it. Um, and that allowed hackers to take control of the cameras and the calling functions of the phone. And is that something that WhatsApp would regularly encounter? Was this a, an everyday occurrence for them? or? Look, they um, have a, a, a good uh, um, product, um, but they need to do rigorous testing all the time. I think all web applications have to do that. Um, so it's... A, the concern for WhatsApp has been that because it's a proprietary uh, a product, unlike Telegram, where it's open source and there are lots more tested done, so you find the vulnerabilities quicker. There's a whole group of people working on it, and then they can patch it, and then that that gives them a bit more make gives you confidence that's, that it is a bit more secure. So we can't say that WhatsApp has got this problem and that it's the only one that stands out. But 
um, because also of the, the amount of users that it has, I think that's why attackers would also want to go after it because it's got quite a few people around the world, roughly 1.5 billion around the world and 28% uh, of that uh, um, or 28% of Australians use WhatsApp. Right. And um, it's, it wasn't as simple as that. There was a, uh, I guess, a, um, there's a political element to this as well. Um, c- could you explain sort of who, who, the, uh, who was behind the attack? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the big political thing is um, the attacks that have been launched, that the spyware that was um, distributed via WhatsApp was particularly targeting human rights lawyers, was targeting journalists, was targeting lawyers, was targeting a, um, politicians. And these people were people that were being targeted in countries like India, um, countries um, like Saudi Arabia, um, countries like Mexico, for example, and the company that's uh, um, selling this product, and this product is called Pegasus, the spyware is called Pegasus, um, is the NSO group, which, um, you know, was funded uh, um, through California-based equity firms back in the day that relinquished the shareholding, and now it's a European company. Um, that's that's behind it, and Enerso Group, along with its majority shareholders, which is Q Cyber Technologies, are the ones that develops it and sells it to governments. And so it allows governments uh, to be able to carry out uh, um, this process of gathering information. Now, what they say is that they're selling this product, and it's a lawful product, um, and it's used to fight crime and to fight terrorism. But what uh, has come out lately um, through the research that's been done by Amnesty International, that it's ordinary citizens that are also being targeted, and that's not just restricted to, you know, collecting uh, um, uh, information and evidence and uh, hunting down terrorists, for example. And that's really what the problem is. Is it? Yeah. Oh, sorry, Warren. Um, so um, WhatsApp has also um, actually full-on gone lawsuit on it. So on uh, the 30th of October, they announced that they've actually filed a complaint in a US federal court um, directly against the NSO group and holding them accountable. Is it common for, um, you know, big tech organisations to go after other big tech organisations like this? This is this is unprecedented, and the step that WhatsApp took, like when I when I saw um, the uh, the lawsuit being filed on the 29th of October, and that was in the Northern District Court in California, where you know it's Silicon Valley, all the tech companies are based there. I say this is huge because you would have hardly seen any tech company going. Um, against another one, but um, if if your your good name is is going to suffer under that, if your systems are being hacked by uh, by these other companies, um, then you would sort of take that step. If your consumers and their privacy, if this community of people of online users that you've built, if they are being harmed, um, and this, that's one of the allegations in the lawsuit. That's what made them decide to go after this uh, um, this tech company for them to uh, for them to be stopped and to be restrained from carrying out those activities, which the 
they weren't very happy about when the vulnerability was stopped early in May. Yep. Oh, sorry, um, well, late May. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, one of the things that, you know, WhatsApp has said in their um, statement announcing this um, lawsuit is that this was... Um, this really reinforces their view that why you know technology companies shouldn't be required to intentionally weaken their security systems or sort of create backdoors for law enforcement. And I'd you know love love to hear your view on that. Um, I saw another article that said uh, uh, this case just proves that governments and law enforcement agencies and intelligence gathering agencies don't need a backdoor. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely not. Um, there are vulnerabilities in every source code. Uh, there are four main types of ones. This one was a command injection one that collects all of the information. Um, the central server sends out commands asking the application to collect the information that they're after and send it back uh, um, to the central command. Now, those kinds of vulnerabilities in most apps do exist, and it's through rigorous testing and continuous testing that you find where the gaps are and you patch them, okay? Now, governments can also find out what those vulnerabilities are. Now, one of the controversial things is if you find out that you have that vulnerability, like this vulnerability that was, was discovered and was completely discovered because people complained about it, WhatsApp didn't know about it, their testing didn't alert them to this particular vulnerability, then the question is, should a company like WhatsApp reveal and disclose that they've got this vulnerability? We know that the guidelines that were issued earlier this week um, uh, that, that's being proposed um, here in Australia, for example, say you should um, inform uh, um, uh, um, the authorities about uh, vulnerabilities that you, for example, find that you, you know, so that they can be patched as one of the ways uh, um, of, of, of blocking all of that. But the problem is um, the, the dilemma that it creates for companies about should we patch it, should we not? If we patch it, does that violate the law? Are we preventing it or should we leave it so that government can? and exploit this through uh, their they means. In a country that's democratic and where laws are being followed, that's an easier question to, to, to answer. Mm. Um, there are court orders, there are warrants that would address that kind of thing. But in countries such as Saudi Arabia or India, where this thing has also blown out, um, the big question is, what do you do in that case if you're a, if you're a tech, uh, um, tech firm? Absolutely, and it's um it's a really interesting case because which is obviously something that we're seeing completely globally is these huge mega platforms, whether they are WhatsApp or Signal or you know Facebook or you know Twitter or just about anything you know Google Apps, um, yeah. they are truly global companies that are being yeah. you know used by absolutely everyone across the board and. Every single country, every single state, even in some instances, has a different set of laws. And so much of, um, you know, what these tech companies are doing is sitting outside these laws. It just hasn't been tested in a court of law in those individual cases yet. So it really is um, throwing up some interesting conundrums. It, it absolutely is. I mean, what makes the problem worse is that we don't have an international convention or treaty mm. that, 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 um, that unites the world in giving it a, 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 
you know, a single standard that all tech companies can say, this is a standard that all countries have agreed to in this treaty or in this convention, and that's what we apply. I mean, we had a little workshop with, with my colleagues yesterday, and that, that was exactly one of the issues that that. that came out that was so controversial in our discussion was about, you know, you make sure that you comply with the laws of that country and you must make sure that you develop um, a, a mechanism that ensures that you comply with the law. But the counter argument to that is how legitimate is that particular law? So we can say yes, if it meets international conventions on human rights, for example, uh, some countries may not have signed up to those human rights conventions. Some countries have a subjective interpretation of what human rights are, uh, or in some countries, um, particular forms of discrimination, uh, for example, being homosexual is, is, is unlawful. Mm. Um, and so if you have an educational talk on WhatsApp about that, um, is, is that something that must be, must be blocked? Is that something where WhatsApp must allow the spying of those individuals? Because in a country like Uganda, that's unlawful, for example. You know, it's one that calls for, for countries of the world to take uh, um, leadership, the global leaders to take some form of action about what the standards are that will apply across the board globally in all countries. And tech companies, leaving that to tech companies to solve that, to sort. We as academics try and propose how that must be done. And that's what this project was about that we were discussing. And we can't even we can't even agree interesting it's uh well yeah a brave new world out there where these things that affect so many people uh, one point do yeah. you say 1.6 billion users 1.8 billion users around the world 1.5 um and, 1.5. and and governments are literally at a loss as to as to what they can do about it and it all happens so quickly do, do you have a, an intuition as to um, how the legal action might unfold or it's too early to tell um, we were, the response from the NSO group, to be fair, has been denying that they don't aid and abet uh, um, governments to spy. Mm. Um, that's one of um, uh, WhatsApp's particular allegation, which is one of the other factors that makes this case so huge. It's not just going after um, a, I wouldn't call him a fellow tech firm, because I don't think WhatsApp wants to be associated with mm. Mm. Um, with Q-Cyber Technologies, but the, the, the allegation that they actually aided and abetted a, a government um, to spy on citizens that are defending human rights and not... The, and then there were over 100, I mean, uh, people that they've identified that were just ordinary citizens, lawyers, defending cases of people um, that have, you know, where governments are, are finding that uh, and they may not be very happy about that, about um, or defending human rights or people protesting uh, particular situations in a country. Um, and that's what the people that they are going after. In terms of how this case may work itself out, um, the allegation is that they trespassed, they, they, they violated the terms of service because they had to download the app and use it themselves, and so they violated those terms, and they should seize and... and and not, you know, hijack the system to spread the malware. I think there's a high likelihood that the court will come back and say, yes, you violated the terms of service. You should be kicked off this platform and you should never do this ever again. Mm. 
Well, we'll uh, we'll ask that you uh, keep an eye on that and report back to us. Uh, perhaps if you uh, if you find something out, don't message us. Uh, maybe just um, <laughs> get it down on paper or, or just just stop by the studio and let us know. I'm keeping a close eye on this one. Thank you <laughs> very much. It is seven thirty-two. You're listening to Bite Into It on Triple R. We're gonna pay a few bills and uh, play a track after that. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Uh, we're now going to have a bit of a chat uh, about uh, political advertising. Um, there's not, uh, I don't think there's an election in Australia for a little while, but um, never a bad time to talk about this topic. Uh, we're now joined in studio by uh, Associate Professor Johan Lindberg uh, of Monash University. Um, uh, Johan is the Director of Monash University's Masters in Journalism program. He teaches journalism, law and ethics and investi- investigative reporting um, with a particular interest in freedom of information and uh, yeah, access to information and media accountability. Um, Johan, thanks for coming by. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, were you surprised when Twitter announced that um, they're looking to end political advertising? It was pretty sudden, to be honest. Um, um, I think they maximised the impact by the way it was announced. Uh, it was pretty clear that momentum was building so strongly that something had to happen. And uh, Twitter being the smaller one, it's probably easier for them to go first, I would have thought, even though they did go global straight away. Uh, but that's the nature of these platforms, and we may come to the platform thing a bit later, but whenever they make a call, it's got huge impact because it's global, you know, and, and that's mm. where this differs from what we've seen in earlier media history. So a bit of a surprise, but something had to happen, I think. Did they? Was it a big sacrifice for them? Did they? Well, so I looked at numbers yeah. a bit, and so, so when you look at numbers, um, you can see that uh, when it comes to Twitter, they get zero point one percent of their income from political ads, so it's very small. Mm-hmm. And then you look at Facebook; they get zero point five percent of the income from political ads. Mind you, zero point five percent of you know Facebook's income <laughs> is significant. And then you look at um, you look at Google and their parent company Alphabet; uh, they get eighty four percent of their total revenue from ads. But of those eighty four percent, only uh, US one hundred twenty one point nine million in the 18 months, May 31, 2018, leading up to now, came from political ads. So it's tiny, tiny, tiny. That's the kicker in all this, you know. So you go, if it's that small, why don't you just give it up? Because clearly you're copying a lot of flack from it. So that's a a question that hasn't been asked yet of none of these, I think, yeah. Where has the pressure come to consider even getting rid of this, like up, up until this point? Political advertising is kind of a you know um, a necessary evil, and it's you know it spikes around campaign times, and you know for argument's sake, it gives you some chance to understand what's going on and what people have to say and what their platforms are. Mm. Why, why has that changed in recent times? Well, the the watershed moment was Cambridge Analytica, of course. You know when both in terms of we didn't see their role clearly in in the Brexit referendum. We saw it much more clearly in the 2016 US campaign. Actually, afterwards, we saw it. We didn't see it during the time. And we only saw it thanks to this one major whistleblower from inside Analytica that came forward and spoke to Carol Caldwaller, the um, journalist for um, The Observer and Guardian, who broke this, you know, only thanks to the whistleblower. And I think... I think the, the sort of deal here was that most of us that use social media, and there's a lot of us, 
know that we gave our collateral is our data. We know that. We've always known that. You know, you, there's no, no such thing as a free lunch. So you give up something. And, uh, you know, those really long agreements that you never really read and you tick the box at the end and all that sort of stuff. And we knew there was sort of an okay feeling around, well, you get my data, you have your, your ad feed and I can have ad blockers, I can, you know, do all that. That was sort of seen as okay. But there, and if you read those agreements, they can use your data pretty much whichever, whichever way they want. But there was never a real agreement on using it for political purposes. And that micro-targeting that Analytica did, that really irked a lot of people, including myself. So I have not... I have done one post on Facebook since Analytica where I said hello at Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. Not that they read what I, what I write, <laughs> but, I, but I said, have you noted lately that I haven't posted, you know, and this is the reason. And until you clean up your act, you know, I'm not going to – I can't delete it for professional and research purposes, but I won't be an active participant. And they Facebook keeps sending me these – Memories like a forlorn lover, like almost stalking me, and I, you know, you know, that doesn't work. So, I think that watershed moment with Analytica really shifted things quite significantly. And political ads, to be perfectly honest, have gone worse and worse in the last decade or so. They, they used to be some sort of information in them, but they've become mainly attack ads you know and i wonder what purpose they really fill in terms of making our vote more informed i mean we have ad blackouts partly in this country but i i think we need to question the the role for political ads in general rather than just on the platforms well particularly if um you know electoral ad advertising regulators are going to be so so lax you know there was a recent case in in new south wales where there were um completely false political posters done up in the australian electoral commission colors mm. and branded to look like aec endorsed you know here's how to vote and they were completely fake news and that's gone to a hearing and it's like yep you completely broke the law just don't do it again next time. Yeah. You know, there's no penalties for, you know, parties, you know, candidates to, to be truthful. So there's no real incentive, it yeah. seems. We have a very long way to come in this country because this is partly connected to our poor disclosure um, regulation for political donations, you yeah. know, as well. And we have a long, long way to come until we've cleaned that up. But to, to go back to the platforms, one thing that really astounds me about Google is they're, they're enormous capacity to fly under the radar so they as i said before they earn a lot of money on political ads too even though in the scope in the scheme of things it's little but there was a recent example in the u.s where um uh, there were really false ads about and i i hesitate to use the word fake news because i think it's mis and disinformation and that's been around for hundreds of years to be honest it's just that it's got it's like um it's like the Empress New Clothes, really, you know. But there was this ad claiming that the Bidens were doing horrible things and it was it was completely wrong. You know, there was not a single fact in that ad. Facebook ran that and got a lot of flack for it, said, no, we won't take it down. That's when, you know, Zuckerberg famously got the question in the last train wreck hearing from, um, in Congress when he got the question, you know, if you find, if you find that an ad is wrong, will you take it down? And he said, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> really weird answer. Google ran the same ad and was not criticised for it at all. So again, they fly under the radar. It's mm -hmm. like they they hold up 
push Facebook in front of them, let them take all the flack and then do the bad stuff and just fly, you know, mm. leisurely. <laughs> I don't know how they do it, actually. <laughs> I don't think Google's ever claimed that they had our best interests at heart. They're, they're clearly a commercial platform, whereas Facebook has tried to present this kind of we're changing the world with you and we're all going to sort of flock together and, you know, um, create this brave new world. They've, they've kind of... I don't know. Maybe maybe we hold them to a higher standard because of that, or we even want to see that see them fail a little bit, perhaps. But what about do project? no evil? Even though they've now Google has now yeah. dropped that, but the whole do no evil they've certainly started out as mm. a force for good, and we're not like the other corporates. And yes, we make a profit, but mm. we're different. That now seems to be completely gone. And I actually think I'm a bit. Um, irritated that Google is not held to the same standards Mm. because they should be, you know. Mm. They really should be held to the same accountability standards as Facebook is. Mm. And it's good now that, you know, we're seeing real pressure on Facebook around the world, including the European Union, where they're really trying to do stuff. And certainly, I think the what to do with the social media oligopolies in the next US race in 2020 is going to be pretty huge, I think. It's going to be interesting to see where that um, goes. So they, I, I want to explore a, a kind of um, um, the opposite side of the coin here, that maybe this is uh, a bad thing and maybe um, banning political advertising disadvantages new candidates, new ideas, um, uh, candidates with smaller budgets perhaps. Um, one of the reasons historically, uh, including Obama, who was, uh, I guess, an underdog at the time, mm. um, it benefited them so well is because um, digital ads are a lot cheaper. Um, it's kind of a scrappy kind of place to, to get started. And then once you establish yourself or, or have deeper budgets, you can do you know, TV advertising or radio or, or billboards or what have you. Um, why, why... How, how do we feel um, uh, smaller candidates, single-issue parties, some of the ones that don't necessarily have the budgets are going to get their name out there? Well, I, I don't think we should leave it to the market, to be perfectly honest. I actually mm. think this is, this is of such incredible um, national interest to wherever it is that you can't leave it to the market. You're going to have mm. to have... There are plenty of examples out there, you know, and we have a tendency in Australia to want to wanting to reinvent the wheel over and over where mm. you can look at other systems that work and adapt them. Mm. So uh, my solution to that would be that you have, um, when you get to a certain number of, and it doesn't have to be very high, but you get to a certain number of uh, registered members or, you know, reach, whatever, you you get some sort of um, basic government. I mean, we have that here in Australia. We, we mm. do have um, a version of that. Uh, so I don't think you should ban political advertising, but I actually think that the solution is that you need to call out specifically because the, the main impact, let's be real about this, the main impact comes via the social media platforms now. Mm. I mean, it used to be commercial TV, free to air used to be huge. Mm. Not so much anymore, you know. So to me, the long-term solution is that we make them own up to the fact that they are publishers and not platforms. This mm. this thing about saying that they are platforms, you can get away with that when you're smallish and you're building stuff, but you've got to own up. You've got to grow up, I think. If you mm. want to play they they've they've turned out to be an anomaly in 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 time, really. I can't recall we've had previous examples in history in market 
based history where we've in the US for instance we had the the train monopolies we had the steel monopolies in the 1920s but they were nationally based much easier to deal with mm. here we're talking about global giants you know the big four um Amazon Google Facebook and uh Apple they are so big that to get any inroad into them you need to go beyond countries mm. so i think I think the EU are leading the way on this. There's some movement in the US, but you need to tell them, well, if you want to play in the big league, you've got to own up. So you become a publisher. And the the reason why they don't want to is because it's really expensive being a publisher. So it would be regulation as well? So making, say, ad units for political ads more distinguishable? Yeah. Um, but then what that means for them is, you know, the response rate and the engagement is lower and yeah. you know, they're less attractive to purchase. So And would there be a fact-checking component? Or yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the, that's the point. That's why I say it's expensive. So mm. if you're really serious, you, you may recall that... Um, Facebook tried for a while to have an algorithm run their um, newsfeed, which famously didn't work at all. It deteriorated within months into hate and, you know, neo-Nazi and all sorts of bad stuff. So it may be in the future that the algorithms will be advanced enough to do that. For the moment, they aren't. So hence, if you want to be a publisher and owning up to that, you've got to employ a lot more people to do the editorial work, to do the fact-checking and then you also, if you're a publisher, you also adhere to both the legal framework, but also the ethical mm, framework. Exactly. You know? yeah. And and I, I can't see, I frankly can't see any other sustainable way of dealing with this. Any other, any other uh, path would be tinkering around the edges, really. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so, what what would be um, what would be your advice to a can? I'm interested to a candidate if you wanted to kind of get out there and build some mm. momentum, and you couldn't pay your way into it because they, Jack Dorsey's statement was these things should be earned, not not yeah. bought. Um, yeah. How how does one kind of create a movement now? I mean, well, at the moment, with I mean, the way it stands now, you can, as Zuckerberg said, you know, he 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 framed it as a freedom of speech issue, mm. which I think is. That's really very rich, you know. If you if you if your view is that freedom of speech includes be having a having a, a platform for outright lies, sure. that's undermining freedom of speech. So my advice to someone trying to get out there, well, it would still be via the platform slash publishers. See, <laughs> we're going to start talking uh, talking about them as publishers mm. because that's the most quickest and most directly engaging way. You know, it's. It's old legacy media. Is they're never going to be able to compete unless, unless they build their own platforms, which you know will probably never be able to compete with the ones that we have. Um, I did want to ask you just briefly. It's kind of uh, slightly off topic, but um, Wiki Tribune, um, one of the founders behind Wikipedia, yeah. has come up with a, a new social network, um, which they're hoping um, is going to be more, um, I guess, quality content. And they've had a couple of hundred thousand users yep. um, sign up in the past few days. Um, I think they're really aiming for that publisher point of view where they want it to be news and fact-based yeah, and so I forth. Saw that. Um, are they crazy? Well, do we want do we want good quality content anymore? <laughs> well, see, if you if you give up on if you don't try, then you've given up. Then you just say, well, I'm just going to roll over and not care anymore. You mm. know, it's a bit like there was this quite remarkable um, piece that Catherine Murphy wrote for Guardian Australia. Uh, uh, in the last last weekend, I think, where she said, you know, we had a climate election in May uh, and the climate lost. 
you know so because the climate lost do you then just roll over and give up the same thing mm. here with the platforms mm. if you if you don't like what the current ones are doing you're gonna have to try so i think that's a that's a great thing you know i mean there are ways that us users can do stuff so i've stopped using google for my searches i use DuckDuckGo, mm -hmm. and i'm gonna keep doing that until i'm okay with what google is doing again i won't actively you know post on facebook until they've they have earned my trust because they've completely lost my trust. So I think as a as a user, you've got to you've got to walk the talk. If you complain, mm. then you've got to walk the talk. You know, don't say I'm going to Google it and say I'm going to search it up. <laughs> no, instead, <laughs> it's so hard to break patterns, though. Of course, uh, Johan, it's a fascinating point in time, and um, yeah, I, I think it's um, a scary point in time. <laughs> it is. It is. Well, as they say, in the old Chinese proverb: "We're in interesting times." <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, thanks for joining us and uh, yeah we'll uh, we'll call you back in when there's more developments here thank you triple R on FM digital online and via the app hi this is Vanessa Taholka thanks for listening to the podcast of triple R's bite into it a weekly radio show exploring tech news broadcast live on triple R from Melbourne Australia every Wednesday Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.